Well, good morning, everyone. I should be on. Am I on? Okay. It's an honor for me to share with you this morning. Let's just begin with a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, you are the man who changed everything. And as we look at some familiar scriptures and the familiar story this morning, I pray that you would open our hearts so that it would be as if we were hearing it for the first time. Like the song that we sang this morning, open our eyes in wonder at your love, at your sacrifice, at your plan of salvation, which is unbelievable but true. So, Lord, we give ourselves to you this morning, and we pray that you would inspire us to live for you. Renew our first love. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you know, uh, in the beginning of the year, we as a church began a series that's taking us completely through the Bible in one year. Since the opening pages of Genesis, we have been looking at the upper story of God's message through the lower story experiences of people not much different than you and myself. Everything that has taken place in history with God's eternal plans to reconcile a people to himself has been pointing to this point in time. This is the pivotal time in history where for the first time the upper story and the lower story suddenly and miraculously come together in one person, Emmanuel, God with us. After thousands of years of history and 400 years of silence, the plan of God to have a people for himself takes a giant leap forward. All the upper story lessons revealed through the agony and the ecstasy of the lower story experiences are finding their fulfillment in this incarnation, in this wonderful, amazing, extraordinary, beautiful man we call Jesus, the man who changed everything. As the writer of Hebrews so eloquently states, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Peter even says that the angels are looking over the balcony of heaven, so to speak, to see the plan of redemption unfolding. It's no wonder that a great company of angels were present, praising and singing at the birth of Christ. Even though the birth of Christ is a pivotal point in history, from the lower story perspective, it was quite uneventful. His birth took place in the sleepy town of Bethlehem, and it was only, and it was only witnessed by a handful of unimportant people. Mary, Joseph, a few shepherds, and a couple of strange prophetic people who hung out in the temple. A couple of years later, there were some foreign dignitaries that brought a special gift, but they left as quickly as they came and with very little fanfare. From a lower story perspective, the biggest and most infamous event that took place at that time was the killing of the innocents by Herod when he heard a rumor of a future king who was to be born in Bethlehem. Now, we don't know much about Jesus' childhood. Last year, Hollywood came out with a movie called The Young Messiah. How many of you saw that? Okay, not too many of you. (laughs) That's probably good. 
It's a story about what Jesus' childhood might have looked like. And as usual, there's a lot of creative imagination uh, used to fuel the public's interest and curiosity about Jesus' boyhood years that has little to do with fact. Actually, the scripture only records one childhood incident during a time when his family went to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Jesus, as you know, was 12 years old, and much to the consternation of his parents, who couldn't find him in the caravan on the way back home, went back and found him talking with the teachers at the temple. It says that Jesus was listening and asking questions, and they were amazed at his understanding. At the close of the story, it said that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with both God and men. That's all we know about Jesus' childhood. We know that he had brothers and sisters. We know that he was learning how to be a good carpenter. We know that at some point, his dad dies, and so he probably used his carpentry skills to support the family. But more importantly, as the scripture implies, Jesus was simply growing in his relationship with his heavenly father. He was learning about who he was, and he was coming to understand why he was placed on this earth. So with that uneventful beginning of his birth and his early childhood, fast forward about 30 years. For the shepherds, those awesome events of long ago are a distant memory. Simeon and Anna are long gone. Even Joseph, Jesus' father, had died at some point. Only Mary treasures in her heart hopes and maybe even fears of what might come. Point number one, the grand announcement. Ever since the prophet Malachi 400 years earlier, God had been silent. And now, all of a sudden, without any fanfare, a person arrives on the scene. This person lives in the wilderness. He dresses in camel's hair. He has a strange diet, and he keeps calling people to a new beginning, saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. When the Jewish leaders heard him calling for repentance, and they saw him baptizing people in the Jordan River, they asked who he was. He said this in John 1. John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of the one calling in the desert, make straight the way of the Lord. Now, Isaiah prophesied that exact phrase 700 years earlier and Malachi 400 years earlier. Any devout Jew who knew his scripture would know that this really was the fulfillment of that prophetic word. Something really big was happening. They knew that this voice could very well be preparing the way of the Messiah. The next day when John saw Jesus, he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No Jewish person there would have missed the significance of that statement. In the Old Testament, only the blood of a young, unblemished lamb could be used as a sacrifice to atone for sin. So when Jesus announces to the world that this was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of men, that was no small thing, and it created quite a stir in the religious community. When Jesus asked John to baptize him, John said, No, Lord, you should be the one baptizing me. But Jesus said this in Matthew 3. He said, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Have you ever wondered what Jesus meant by that? How does Jesus' baptism fulfill all righteousness? Well, first, by submitting to John's baptism, 
Jesus was actually endorsing John's ministry and God's plan for salvation. That plan included John preparing the way for the Messiah. By allowing himself to be baptized, he identified with John's ministry and God's coming plans and purposes for redemption. The second reason Jesus' baptism fulfills all righteousness is because it foreshadowed what Jesus came to do. By allowing himself to be baptized, Jesus was identifying with sinful humanity. And even though Jesus was sinless, it was as if he was taking the weight of the sin upon himself, even in that moment. And he was dying and being buried and then being raised to newness of life. And so Jesus' baptism foreshadowed what he actually came to do. It fulfilled what was right. After Jesus was baptized, the scripture says that the heavens were open and the Spirit of God descended upon him as a dove. And then there was a voice from heaven that said this, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is one of those rare times in the story when we see all three members of the Trinity. We hear the voice of the Father from heaven. We see the Spirit of God descending as a dove upon Jesus, the Son of God. Following his baptism, Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And I believe there are three things that kept Jesus from falling into temptation of the devil. First, he knew who the Heavenly Father was. He had a rich relationship with the Father. And his desire was to honor him and please him and submit to him in any way he could. Second, Jesus knew who he was. He understood his identity in God and his purpose and his mission on earth. And third, he had a rich understanding of the Word of God. And I think this is a powerful example to us about how we can resist temptation as well. We need to know the nature and character of God and trust Him with our lives. We need to know who we are in Christ. We need to see ourselves as God sees us. We really need to understand who we are as sons and daughters of God. And then we really need to know the Word of God well so that when the enemy speaks his lies... We can speak the truth against him. When the circumstances of life pull us away from God or have a tendency to pull us away from God, we can anchor our souls in the truth of the word of God. After his baptism and his wilderness experience, Jesus launched into his three-year public ministry and everything changed. Nothing stayed the same. Have you ever noticed with all the testimonies that we've been hearing this year, this morning with Kathleen, Nothing stays the same after we meet Jesus. Everything changes, and I was no different. So I want to share a little of my story with you this morning. Point number two, a testimony of discovery. I was one of those fortunate kids who was raised in a good family. My mom and dad loved each other, and they loved us kids by spending time with us and giving us many wonderful opportunities and experiences. My childhood and teenage years were pretty normal by 1950s and 60s standards. I learned about Jesus in Sunday school, and I tried to be a good boy. I got into a little trouble in my middle school years. I got mixed up with the wrong crowd. But God had mercy upon me, and before I got into too much trouble, he used my dad, who was a real disciplinarian, to get me back on the right track. I developed a new set of friends, my grades went back up, and I started getting involved in sports. 
After I graduated from high school in Milwaukee, I decided to come to the UW here in Madison. I was eager to branch out on my own. Madison seemed like a fun town. UW had a good gymnastic team, and I was really into the sport of gymnastics at that time. I was surprised to hear that my mom was very concerned about me coming to Madison. Some of you are old enough to remember that the late 60s and early 70s were very turbulent times on college campuses around the country. We were right in the middle of the Vietnam War. There were many large war protests on campus during that time. Many times the crowds had to be dispersed with tear gas. It was also a time of the hippie movement. And there were a lot of experimentation with sex and drugs and Eastern religions. Needless to say, my mom wasn't too fond of sending her firstborn son into the lion's den. I assured her that I'd be okay, but her concern did register with me, and I determined not to let these negative influences change me. So reluctantly, my parents agreed to let me go. When I got to Madison, I started unpacking, and I was surprised to see that my mother and my grandmother had conspired together, and they slipped a Bible into my suitcase, (laughs) along with a little note that said, we're praying for you. Now, my grandmother was a very godly woman, and I used to love to listen to her talk about God. She made a deep impression on me as I was growing up. So I smiled at the note and I tossed the Bible aside and I finished getting settled in and I quickly slipped into the college scene. Well, it wasn't long before I was staring face to face at all the things that I heard about. The opportunity to participate in sex and drugs and drinking and parties was all there in front of me. And because I had lived a pretty protected childhood, it came to me as a real culture shock. There were so many choices before me, it really made me think. Even though I was determined not to change and not to let those things affect me, I was blown away with the options in front of me. Nobody was there to tell me when to get up or when to go to bed. Nobody was there to tell me how to manage my time or what friends to hang out with, what to choose for entertainment, much less all the other things I could experiment with or do for fun. As I thought about it, I said to myself, wow, What do I really believe? And there's a lot of exciting possibilities out there, and why should I say no to any of them? Is there really a right and a wrong? Does God exist? And if he does, what does he have to say about my life and about all these things around me? I heard all the Bible stories growing up about God and about Jesus, but I never read the Bible or understood how it related to me. With a whole new world literally before me, I decided I needed to figure out what I really believed. And so I picked up this Bible that my mom and my grandmother packed for me those many years ago, and I read it for the first time. Not just hearing about God from someone else, but really reading the words for myself to see what this book said about him and about me and about this crazy world in which we live. I started in the New Testament in the book of Matthew. I don't know how to explain it, but I was immediately gripped with the words of Jesus. It was like the truth of his words just leapt right off the the page and into my heart. In Luke 19, it says that when Jesus spoke, the people hung on his words. That was me. 
I was captivated by the words in the life of Jesus. And looking back on it now, I really believe it was the work of the Holy Spirit in answer to my mother's and my grandmother's prayers. I was so impressed with who Jesus was. I was impressed with the truth of his words, the way that he talked with people, the way that he loved people, even the unlovely and even his enemies. He could easily see the motivations of men's hearts. He spoke wise words when people were trying to trap him. I love the stories he told, the miracles that he performed, the way that he spoke about the Heavenly Father as he lived in the love of the Father and the extravagant love that would take him to the cross to die for us. It was like the Holy Spirit was personally leading me through a Bible study on the life of Christ, and I was undone. I knew that my life would never be the same. I hadn't even finished the book of Matthew. And I remember one night kneeling at my bedside and praying. And I remember praying several things. First, I expressed how grateful I was that he loved me so much that he was willing to die on the cross in my place. Second, I remember asking for his forgiveness for living my life on my own without him. And then third, I just simply asked God to make me like Jesus. I just wanted to be like him. And I knew I wanted to live the rest of my life in a way that pleased him. And so I went to bed that night feeling an extraordinary peace, and I really slept well. And when I woke up the next morning, I remember feeling really happy. I knew something was different. I couldn't explain it, but I knew that this man had changed everything in my life. I felt a joy and I felt a lightness in my heart that I never experienced before. And I noticed that God filled me with a love for people instantly that I never had before. When I walked around on campus, I actually remember seeing the faces of people for the first time. I was impacted by a sense of their lostness. And at the same time, I was acutely aware that each person was precious to God, precious to God in and intimately loved by him just as he had loved me. This was the beginning of my life in Christ and the adventure of walking with him in every area of my life. I had a chance to share my faith with many people whose God, whose hearts God had prepared just like he prepared my heart. And I never felt more alive than when I had a chance to share the reality of God with other people. In every season of my life, and there's been many seasons since that day in college when I was 18 years old. I did the math as I was sitting in the pew this morning. That was 47 years ago. God has been so faithful, and I can't imagine what my life would be like without him. And I can't wait until the day when I see him face to face. Thank you. Point number three the man who changed everything. Point A, Jesus changed everything because of the way he taught. Whether you're in school now, and many of you are going to be starting school very soon here, or whether you were in school years ago, we've all had good teachers and we've all had bad teachers. Bad teachers made learning difficult and boring. Good teachers made learning easy and fun. A good teacher had a way of captivating your attention and making the material interesting and relevant and engaging. Matthew 7:28 summarizes what the people thought about Jesus as a teacher. 
When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. The Jewish people were accustomed to going to the synagogue or going to the temple to listen to their rabbis read from the book of the law and the prophets. They knew it was an important part of their traditions and an important way to understand how to live their lives. But quite frankly, it was boring. When Jesus taught, he taught as one who really knew what he was talking about. He spoke with authority. He had credibility because he lived what he taught. Have you ever heard this phrase, what you are speaking, or you're speaking, excuse me, what you are speaks so loudly, I cannot hear what you say. What you are speaks so loudly, I cannot hear what you say. Jesus spoke with authority because his actions and his words matched. Jesus spoke in parables and stories about everyday events and that people could relate to. When Jesus spoke, they were captivated by his words. They never heard teaching like this before. He communicated the truth about God in a way that made sense and resonated with their hearts. Point B, Jesus changed everything because of the kingdom that he revealed. When Jesus began his public ministry, he began by announcing that the kingdom of God was at hand. He told them what the kingdom of God was like and how it was different from the world in which they lived. He said it was like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of seeds, yet it grows into a tree where birds can find protection. The kingdom of God is like yeast, which gets worked into the dough and causes it to rise. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it for joy, he went and sold everything that he had so he could possess that treasure. Jesus taught that the kingdom of God is real and powerful, even though we can't see it. It's not a physical kingdom, it's within you. But it has a real king, and it operates under the law of love. This kingdom is so contrary to the kingdom of the world. In this kingdom, things seem flipped upside down. In this kingdom, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. In this kingdom, greatness is identified by serving rather than being served. In this kingdom, motives are more important than appearances, and character is more important than position. In this kingdom, it is better to store up treasures in heaven than on earth. And in this kingdom, we are so secure that we can actually love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Wow. What a kingdom that is. Point C, Jesus changed everything because of the miracles that he performed. During the time of his earthly ministry, which spanned three years, the gospel record Jesus performing 37 different miracles. At the, close of verse, at the closing verse in the gospel of John, John 21, John says this, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. It's obvious that Jesus did many miracles that were never written in Scripture. From turning water into wine to raising Lazarus from the dead, from healing every kind of sickness, including leprosy and deformity, deafness, blindness, and casting out many demons, nothing like this had ever been seen before. Can you imagine how even seeing one of these miracles would have impacted your life? Point D, 
Jesus changed everything because of the power that he had over nature. Matthew 8, 23. Then Jesus got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him up saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and he rebuked the winds and the waves and it was completely calm. Can you imagine Jesus standing at the Gulf of Mexico, right on the Texas coast, shouting out to Hurricane Harvey, rebuking the winds and the waves and telling them to be still? He can do it. He demonstrated that he can do that. What an amazing man. What kind of a man is this? At the end, it said, they were amazed and asked, what kind of a man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. This is no ordinary man. Later on, Jesus defies the laws of gravity by walking on water. He curses a fig tree and it dies. And then there's the miracle where I think Jesus is just showing off a little bit, no disrespect intended. They have to pay the temple tax. So he says, Peter, get your fishing pole, go to the lake, throw in your line, and the first kid fished fish that you catch, open his mouth, and you'll find money in there to pay the temple tax. (laughs) That just makes me laugh. I don't know why. I mean, he could have supplied that money in many other ways, but that was a cool way of doing it. Even nature was subject to his will. Point E, Jesus changed everything by his deep compassion. As I was reading the words of Jesus in my dorm room those many years ago, one thing became obvious. Jesus loved people. In the midst of their pain and their brokenness and their dysfunction, he really, really loved people. And he demonstrated his love by his compassion. Compassion is love in action. There are over a dozen times that the Bible references Jesus' compassion for people. And I want to share a couple of my favorites with you. Here's one from Matthew 9, verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. It confirmed what David knew about the Lord in Psalm 34 when he said the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Here's another favorite of mine that shows the compassion of Jesus. Jesus, along with his disciples and a large crowd, went to a town called Nain. As he approached the town, a dead person was being carried out. It turns out it was the son, the only son of a widow. Losing a son is bad enough. But losing a son when you're a widow is very difficult. There were no safety nets back then, as we have today. Being a widow without a son or a family member to support you was tantamount to a, de- a sentence of destitution. Jesus understood all this, and he reached out in compassion. Luke seven thirteen says this. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. See the compassion? And he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. 
Perhaps no other image shows the compassion in the heart of Jesus more than this one from Matthew 23, verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus was compassionate. Point F, Jesus changed everything because he understands the motivations of men's hearts. Once when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, the scripture says that many people saw the miracles that he was performing and believed in him. But the next verse is very telling. It says this in John 2, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all men. He knew what was in a man. You see, there were so many times when the religious leaders tried to chap, trap Jesus by setting up a situation where it would be obvious to all that Jesus was not acting in accordance with their traditions and their laws. And then they would have grounds for getting rid of him and maybe even killing him. And every single time a trap was laid for him, Jesus saw right through it, and he would respond with his extraordinary insight and wisdom like to give you an example, one of my favorites. It's Matthew 22, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went out and had plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Just so you guys know, the Herodians were a Jewish political group that were sympathetic to King Herod's rule. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Gag me with a spoon. <laughs> Tell us this then. What is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? What snakes? What a devious setup. First, they give these brown-nosed compliments, which if they really believed in would eliminate the need to ask this question in the first place. Second, they ask a question that no matter how Jesus answers will get him into trouble. Right? The people hated paying taxes to Caesar. The taxes were backbreaking, and it reminded them of their oppression under Roman rule. So if Jesus said they should pay their taxes, it would not be very popular with the people. If he said they shouldn't pay taxes, he'd be in trouble with the Roman authorities who required it. Okay, Jesus, what do you say? Going on in verse 18. But Jesus, showing their, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius. And he asked them whose portrait this is and whose inscription. Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Bam. <laughs> I love that. I just love that about Jesus. So... Caesar not only wanted the taxes, but he also wanted their worship. He thought he was God, and he thought he deserved to be worshipped as God. So Jesus, when Jesus said, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, he's saying, go ahead. Let Caesar have his money. Pay the taxes. But we're going to give God what is God's. That is our very lives, our love, and our worship, because that's what's most important. Wow. The scripture concludes, and it says, when they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. These arrogant men, who were so sure of themselves, left with a tail between their legs. 
There's so many other stories like that. I love reading those in the scripture. Point G, Jesus changed everything because he revealed who God really was. Colossians says that God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in Jesus. Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. When the disciple Philip said to Jesus, show us the Father and that will be enough for us, Jesus said this in John 14. Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say I am in the Father and the Father is in me. This is incredibly profound and it gives us such amazing insight into the relationship and the dynamic between the Father and the Son. If you've seen one, you've seen the other. That's because Jesus and the Father were one. Jesus knew that the people of God had a wrong perception about who God was for the most part. In the Old Testament, God poured out fire from heaven to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. He opened the earth to swallow all of those who opposed Moses. And he commanded Joshua to practice ethnic cleansing in Canaan of men, women, children, and animals. Before Jesus came, they could only see God's actions. And his actions against sin made him appear as if he didn't care for people or was angry with them most of the time. His attempts to have a people for himself were constantly misunderstood. But when Jesus came, he changed all that. He spoke of the Father in such tender terms. By listening to the words of Jesus and watch, watching how Jesus lived in the love of the Father, we were able to see God's heart. We were able to see his love, his generosity, his goodness, and the kind intentions of his will. Jesus changed everything because he revealed who God really was. Point H, Jesus changed everything because he claimed that he was God. One of the most outrageous and profound claims of Jesus at that time was that he was God. It's one of the reasons why the Pharisees wanted to kill him. He was constantly making statements that pointed to his divinity, and the Pharisees saw that as blasphemy. Perhaps the most dramatic example of this was in John 8, when Jesus and the Jews were talking about Abraham. Jesus said this, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him. And you have seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. I am is God's name for himself that he revealed to Moses. It is Yahweh. I am the one who is. When Jesus used this term, the, new, the Jews knew exactly what he was claiming to be, and that's why they picked up stones to kill him. He was making himself out to be Yahweh. He was not only claiming to have existed before Abraham, but eternally as God. All the things that Jesus said and did on this earth had one purpose, and it wasn't to show us that he was an extraordinary man. It wasn't even to show us that he was really the Messiah. Their understanding of the Messiah 
about who he was and what he would be were way too small. They saw the Messiah as an earthly liberator, as someone who would reign as David did so they could cast off their enemies and live in peace. But God had far more in the mind than that. He came to save a people who were irrevocably and eternally lost. He came to do something about the human condition. He was going to take the punishment for the sins of humanity on himself so that we could be reconciled to God. No man could do that. It had to be God himself. Jesus came to show us that he was God in the flesh. And then point I, Jesus changed everything because he demonstrated a love that was willing to die for us. The idea that a transcendent and eternal God would die is absolutely preposterous. The idea that a holy God would somehow take the collective sin of humanity, put it on himself, and receive the punishment that our sins deserved was unthinkable. Why would God do that? Why would he bother? Why would he put up with us all over these years, and why would he subject himself to such suffering? Why wouldn't he just start over with another group of people or some other form of creation that would satisfy his desire to share his glory? Wouldn't that have been a lot easier? The one word answer is love. He, he gave us a clue when he said, there's no greater love that a command have than, than laying down his life for his friends. And guess what? He calls us his friends. And even though he was God, he was willing to lay down his life for his friends. Those he loves with an everlasting love. There's no other way to explain it. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the drops of blood that dripped off of his brow as he came to grips with the sacrifice that he would willingly make helps us to understand the extent of that love. The prayer that he prayed from the agony on the cross where he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Asking the Father to forgive the very people who put him up on that cross demonstrates the nature of his Profound love. And as difficult and as confusing as life is here on this earth, if I ever have a doubt about how God feels about me, all I have to do is look to the cross. It is the ultimate and definitive evidence of his profound love. Point number four, and this is my last point before I close, the upper story perspective. When God created Adam and Eve... He enjoyed the kind of intimate fellowship in the Garden of Eden that he always desired. That was his plan. But as we all know, it didn't last long, and after the fall, our relationship with God dramatically changed. With few exceptions down through the ages, we've always related to God at a distance. They related to God, and they came to terms by coming to grips with his moral law. They related to him out of fear. They related to him through some type of mediator. They related to him out of this elaborate ritualistic system of sacrifice. The upper story and the lower stories seem far apart. But when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the upper story was inserted into the context of the lower story. Through Jesus, God was actually living with his people again. One of the first things that Jesus declared when his public ministry began is that the kingdom of heaven is near. The upper story is not way out there, beyond reach and beyond touch, beyond comprehension. It's right here. You can feel it. You can touch it. It's in our midst. 
So for the first time since God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve, he was among his people again, the way he always desired to be. I think it was a delight for Jesus to be with his disciples and the ordinary people of his day. I think he really enjoyed being with people. Even though their lives were broken, they were drawn to Jesus, not repelled by him. His followers were secure enough in their relationship with him to be vulnerable and to be genuine. And even the last day before Jesus would be crucified, they really hadn't figured out who he was. They were pretty sure that he was the Messiah by this point, but their understanding of the who Messiah would be was far from what it would be. And their understanding was far less then than it would be just in a few days. In a few hours, Jesus would be taken from them. He'd be tried, tortured, and crucified. But the disguise about who he really was was about to come off. The next time the disciples would see him, he would be the resurrected Christ. There would be no hiding who he was then. And after the resurrection and ascension, and after the disciples received the Holy Spirit, they finally understood what all of us see so clearly today. Jesus' words to his disciples in John 14, 20, finally made sense. Jesus said, on that day, meaning the day when they finally understand, you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. In that short but profound, profound verse of Scripture, Jesus revealed what God's desire has been since the first day of creation, to invite men and women into a relationship with him that he had known himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, through all eternity. I bet it was difficult for Jesus to contain his excitement as he revealed the great desire of the ages, the longing of God to live in intimate fellowship with his creation. Amen. Would the worship team please come up? <clears throat> I'm so grateful, you guys, for the opportunity to have talked about this beautiful man, Jesus. I can't think of anything else that I would rather have talked about. And with the short time that we have remaining... Here's how I'd like to use our response time together. I'm going to ask each of you here today, every single person here today, as the worship team comes up to play, to close yourself in and have a personal response time with the Lord. There may be some of you here today who really don't know the Lord, but the words that you've heard today have created a longing inside your heart to really know Him. Maybe some of you here today have grown up around Christianity like I did, and you know who Jesus is, but you've never had a personal encounter with him that is profound and transformational. I encourage you, if that's you, in these moments to give your life to the Lord. There may be some of you today who know the Lord, but your experience with him as of late has been hard and dry. God seems far away. You know that something's wrong, but you're not quite sure what it is. I would encourage you, to draw close during this time and rediscover this beautiful man and let him renew your first love. And finally, you may be here today and this fresh look at Jesus has caused you to remember why you gave your life to him in the first place and you simply want to take a few moments to express your love for him. Whatever the nature of your relationship with Jesus, 
Let's use this time, these few minutes, to draw close to Him. The Bible says that if we draw close to Him, He will draw close to us. So give your hearts fully to the Lord. Let this man who changed everything change you. You are welcome to stay in your seats or you're welcome to come up to the front as the worship team plays. But let's draw close to the Lord and let him draw close to us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.